Good afternoon. Welcome to Round the Table from Christian Concern. It's that time of the week where we look at an important topic or case that's going on. We put it under a microscope, a microscope and give a thoughtful and hopefully inspiring Christian understanding of it. Thanks for joining us today. If you're watching uh, us live, please do put a comment in there to let us know that you're there. Uh, we'd love you to get your comments, your questions in, uh, so that you can be that extra person around the table with us today. And of course, press the like button uh, wherever you're watching or listening. It really helps us get the message out. Well, today we're looking at this important issue of transgender ideologies in schools and social transitioning. Lots of people have been waking up recently to the danger of cross-sex hormones uh, and puberty blockers for children. But what about social transition, where a child simply cross-dresses and is, in, is affirmed in a different gender? Is that just harmless experimentation, like putting on a princess or firefighter costume, trying out a different identity? Well, I'm joined uh, this week um, by Andrea, uh, Minichiela Williams, um, who has lots of expertise on this very issue as uh, being at the forefront of this issue uh, in terms of Christian Legal Centre cases over these years. Welcome, Andrea. Good to be with you, Paul. Good to be with everyone out there. Great. And we're especially pleased to be joined this week by Dr. Andre uh, Van Mol. He is the co-chair of the American College of Pediatricians Committee on Adolescent Sexuality. He is a family physician, a former US Naval officer, and he serves on the boards of Bethel Church Reading and Moral Revolution. And he's joining us today all the way from California. Good morning, Andre. Good morning. And it really Thanks. is morning for it really it's, is morning for Andre. It's uh, it's early hours, something like four, uh, five o'clock in the morning now. That's right. Maybe? That's right. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for making the effort. We really appreciate it. And I really want to remind the viewers to get their comments and questions in today. Uh, we often have excellent guests on around the table, but this is a really special opportunity to get uh, questions answered by a genuine uh, expert on these sorts of these sorts of issues. So, Andrea, I really want to start with you, though, because uh, there's a reason why we're talking about this issue. There's a case, uh, legal case this week that we've been supporting uh, that's known as Hannah. Can you tell us what's happened there and what's at stake? Yes, well, we were in the High Court uh, earlier this week on Tuesday. We were seeking a judicial review of um, Hannah's case, of, of what was occurring in a school where she was a primary school teacher. Um, just over a year ago, so a year ago, uh, starting in the academic year, um, in, the, in the summer holidays, just before uh, school was about to begin, um, she was told that they would be entering into her class a child from another school who would come to the school in uh, in the opposite in, in the opposite gender, the opposite sex. So, so this little this this little girl would in fact be coming to school as a boy. And she said she raised concerns about this, saying that she would not be able to. Uh, she didn't think that it was healthy or right. For the child to be to be affirmed in the the sex in which they wanted to present themselves, and so she raised issues with the school. She actually uh, began to put re reasoned papers papers from uh, people such as Andre Van Mol and a number of others to the head at the school to say that actually affirming a child 
in the sex that they believed they were in or uh, in, the, in which they were dressed would be something that was harmful, not just to the child, but also to the children in the class and to the year group. We helped to reach an accommodation of the situations whereby the child didn't actually go into her class, um, but she then had, she was told that she wasn't able, she shouldn't interact with the child and so on and so forth. However, what then began to happen uh, was the child um, began to really become troubled at school. There were a number of issues around the child in the other class. Of course, it wasn't rational or reasonable for there not to be interaction across the year group and in the playground with all the various children. Um, and so then what happened was this, that uh, um, Hannah reported uh, the situation through the safeguarding mechanisms at the school. Internally, in order to raise this concern for the child's well-being and welfare, and then also to the safeguarding authorities within the local authority. Um, we again there, we presented a number of expert papers from Andre Van Mol and a number of others. Uh, in fact, hundreds of pages of evidence that showed that affirming a young child in uh, the in the opposite sex, in a social transition, was, uh, was harmful to the child. And so as a result of this, however, that, that evidence appears to have been ignored. And so we judicially reviewed the safeguarding procedure of uh, the school and the local authority. However, on Tuesday, we were pushed back immediately by the High Court judge who said that there was no reason to judicially review this matter, that it was a moot point as to whether or not socially transitioning a young child, a primary school child, uh, was harmful. And so we lost our case at that point, and we're now, in these days, we've got seven days to appeal, and so we're currently working on appealing uh, that case. So that's exactly where we are. And of course, it comes against the backdrop of Nigel and Sally Rowe, and it took us five years to get that the judicial review of the education policies in their primary school up before the High Court. There a High Court judge said to us that the social transition of a child and indeed social transitioning policies and these sorts of policies in schools are about the whole education of a school and therefore something that was susceptible to judicial review. It doesn't seem um, that Mrs Justice Farby took that into consideration uh, on Tuesday. Um, however, and they and that as a result of the Nigel and Sally Rowe case, the government is now said to be undergoing a review of these policies in schools. But the live situation is that we were pushed back in the case of Hannah. Uh, the child um, has continued to exhibit behaviour about which she is concerned. And indeed, although of course I do not know the child, I feel very concerned that that child is so distressed. And of course, that all the other children are living in this, this, this bubble where the uh, authorities are actually t saying something that isn't true. Let's just, um, we've got a short video of Hannah speaking about her story, uh, just telling her story again, but there are some details in there that, um, that I think are quite interesting uh, that we should have a little listen to. So um, if we could just play that video and then we'll come back. For us, it was quite a new thing. You know, having a child who was identifying as trans was a new thing in our school. This was the first year that had ever happened. So 
When I heard about this child coming into my class, I told the head teacher my concerns, and I was basically told I had no choice about this. And I was also told that I might face suspension and possible um, dismissal if I didn't go along with this practice of affirming the child. I simply said, I'm not going to do this because it's harmful. I mean, we're not just talking about cross-dressing here. We're talking about affirming a child in the belief that they're in a wrong body and actually encouraging them to effectively hate their own body and hate themselves as a consequence. That's not safeguarding children. My concerns were kind of dismissed, really, as well. We've, we've taken advice from the local authority. We've gone through all the correct channels. This is what we've been advised to do. Um, it's not really going to do any harm. You know, your concerns aren't really um, a real issue. I was suspended for a little while. They asked me to stay at home. They took the child out of my class. And at that point, we got in touch with the Christian Legal Centre for support. And they were brilliant because they gave us so much confidence. They wrote letters to the head on our behalf, explaining that, you know, they couldn't coerce somebody into doing something against their, their beliefs and their will. Um, and eventually, it actually led to my reinstatement. When I got back into school, it was clear that this child, who I'd not met until then, was very troubled, exhibiting lots of attention-seeking behaviour. Teachers were struggling with the child. And I could see on reports that were written that this child was really under pressure by the approach, I believe, that we were using to support them. Eventually, they actually disclosed their biology to the class. So, um, that also meant that yet more children were being affected by this idea that you can be born in a wrong body. And I was very concerned about the impact of that on other children in the school as well. That's the video of Hannah. You can watch the whole video on our website. And it's worth saying that her name's been changed to protect uh, the identity of the child involved. Um, Andre, it's time to come to you now. Can I just as a quick aside before we come to Andre, because I think that's actually an important point there. You know, we, of course, we want to protect the child involved. That's something that's really important. We wouldn't want um, any distress to come to that, to the child. But in order to tell these stories, um, it becomes really difficult to, to tell these stories. And the teacher that, who has sought the truth and has sought to bring care to that child is the one whose image has to be distorted, whose voice who has to be distorted, who has to go undercover, who is reported, in fact, as a safeguard. She herself is reported uh, or seen as a safeguarding risk. These kind of things begin to happen. She is the one that gets dismissed for gross misconduct, yet her name cannot be known. The teachers who are actually doing this, the head teachers, the local authorities, we're ordered by court that none of these details should be made known in the public. Um, if we do, we're in contempt of court and liable to imprisonment. The pressure, the pressure just in seeking to open up, to put this story into the, to the open, and the availability and manner in which it's done means that the whole impact is lessened because everything is done behind this veil. And, and it's hard to be really open with the, with the full set of details in order for people to really understand what it is that's going on. 
So I think that's, that's part of the pressure as well. Yeah, that's definitely worth mentioning. Thanks for that. Um, so Andre, um, what stands out to you about this story? Oh, a good many things. One, we have decades of literature that show the overwhelming probability in gender dysphoric uh, kids and adults both of mental health issues, adverse childhood experiences, autism spectrum disorders, uh, highly overrepresented in, in that group. And of course, uh, problemed family dynamics, which is almost assuredly uh, involved here. You know, the, the norm for gender dysphoria is a desistance. Conservatively, 85% of the time, unless of course it's affirmed, which is what the school system apparently is saying you must do. The medical literature and psychological literature, you'll find all kinds of uh, statements in there that say do not prematurely affirm. Uh, for one, the, you know, the overwhelming probability of desistance. For two, these underlying factors that are almost always there. And three, you know, this process is really hard to turn around once you're a ways down it. Um, so, you know, I can understand uh, schools feeling very pressured uh, from the ideological groups. And of course, what's happened in society that, you know, academics, the corporate world, the entertainment industry is all saying one thing, uh, but but what they're saying is mistaken. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so what is the what is the alternative? Um, so you know, people feel, I think, that, you know, you've got a small child, they're, sh they're sure of something and that to kind of contradict them by kind of forcing them to um, live in their own gender and represent themselves as what they really are. Uh, they think that that's kind of mean and, and unfair and hurtful towards that child. Um, what What is the approach that we, we can take and should take in your view? Well, well let, let's look at how extreme the approach is that's being taken right now before we answer that. I mean, the entirety of the school, all the students, all the teachers, all the administrators are coerced into, you know, bowing their knees to this non-reality. Now, a person can be compassionate and should be uh, compassionate and understanding to a person with whatever kind of troubles. But, uh, you know, controlling other people's speech, controlling other people's behavior, that's that that's radical. We just shouldn't do that. So it is the international radical. It is so radical. It's yeah. so I mean, it's so radical. And I mean, and so disproportionate. You know, all the teachers are you are they are compelled to call the child by another name compelled to refer the, uh, to the child in the uh, sex that they have chosen or their parents have chosen. And this against the backdrop where they see all the outworking of what um, Dr. Van Mol has just out outlined in terms of those, those, those things that are associated <clears throat> with a child identifying in, in, in the opposite in the in the opposite sex and i often think in these situations and in fact we've been involved in a number of them we've been involved in a number of them where we are we are assisting gender dysphoric children oh very much and what we're doing of course and what we do there what we do there is give the child one-on-one -on -one attention one-on-one -on -one medical uh help in all and um in and in order to Look, look at the trauma, look at why they're acting, feel the way that they do, and actually spending real time to seek to help the child to understand uh, how they're feeling and why they're behaving in the way that they do. Yeah. And, and surely that has, that surely that's the right thing to do. Dr. Yeah, Van the, right, the international standard of care has been, and now is increasingly, uh, what's called watchful waiting with intensive psychological evaluation and support 
for both the child and the family because again, you are sure to find issues in both. Now, this, the school shouldn't play therapist. Uh, however, they also shouldn't be you know, coercing everybody into compliance with something that's really not demonstrated to be as helpful as people are led to believe. We've got a comment here from Carol Donaldson. Thank you for that. The safeguard here was the teacher speaking out in the child's interest and was shut down for her bother. Thanks for that comment. Yeah, that's true. Um, the teacher, I mean, that's one of the dif difficulties with hiding um, this person's face and amending her, her voice. Uh, you don't see the compassion that's clearly there for this child. It's not a case of someone pushing their own ideas so much as someone genuinely standing up um, for I mean, this child. The, and I think being in the courtroom the other day, the idea that, um, that the judge, despite all the evidence in front of her, could say that... Essentially, this is a 50-50 situation in terms that, that no evidence was presented from the other side mm -hmm. in, uh, to, to, to say that je that actually affirming the child uh, in their social transition was a was a benefit. No evidence at all. A file yeah. of evidence from us. You know, social transitioning itself, again, in the medical literature is associated with persistence. It derails yeah. natural desistance that would have happened on its own. So, the, for example, the Endocrine Society in the United States in 2017, they were the first medical organization to support transition of minors in certain selected cases. And they say themselves, and I'm quoting, social transition is associated with the persistence of gender dysphoria as a child progresses. Professor Ken Zucker, a University of Toronto and their gender clinic, said gender social transition of prepubertal children will increase dramatically, his words, uh, the rate of gender dysphoria persistence. And then he goes on to say, this might be characterized as iatrogenic. Iatrogenic is what we call a, a problem, a disease state that's caused by the medical profession. So we're, we're imposing something. Uh, the American Psychologic Association's Handbook on Sexuality and Psychology back in 2014 warned that premature labeling of gender identity should be avoided and that specifically Early social transition should be approached with caution to avoid foreclosing this stage of the transgender identity development. And uh, recent stuff um, out of the UK with your NHS interim service specifications uh, for specialists treating gender dysphoric uh, youth uh, specified that social transitioning now really needs to be viewed as an active intervention. It's not just a benign thing that has significant effect on the child uh, and the young person. And they did that as a reference to what had come out previously in the interim CAS report, the CAS review, where they, they said the same. So there's there's nothing benign going on here. You know, you're you're reinforcing a child's delusion. And we have a situation in society, uh, as was brought up in, in uh, Dr. Lisa Lippman's uh, survey of parents with rapid onset gender dysphoria from 2018, where it's pretty much being instilled in the minds of the youth and older people too that you know transgenderism becomes your catch-all diagnosis for every problem and you know uh, uh, mental stress that you have and transition is the cure-all solution well you know neither is true but what happens when you have a society believing this there's a great deal of damage that's going to be done to you through this yeah indeed you see a comment there can't we from claire as well kate's oh. just been put up yeah I was going to say, uh, Kate's, you know, this extraordinary denial of reality. Um, uh, that's what she says. Uh, Claire's comment here. Uh, I'm a secondary school teacher. 
uh, in recent months, we have had several children who've requested different names and pronouns. I mean, Andrea, what, what is the situation in the UK? Is it this, you know, is watchful waiting kind of standard or or what really happens in these sorts of cases? Well, no, watchful waiting isn't standard. Standard, And I think it's it's interesting that what Dr. Von Moll has shown there, I mean, he's shown that um, certainly those that are reading the literature can see that watchful waiting is harmful. And indeed, some uh, some of those the other way around yes watchful waiting is good um but the but the and some of those in authority within the government of the united kingdom are are saying that they're beginning to say that and that's indeed what the case of nigel and sally Rowe um ha, has has done ha, has done as well however in the courtroom the other day and still the thrust of what's happening in the schools who are adopting Stonewall agenda, Mermaid's agenda, Educate and Celebrate um, agenda. Those, those organisations have been in the schools for the last, some of them for 20 years, some of them for a bit less, for 10 years or five years. But the point is they have been setting the policy standards on this issue within the schools and within the local authorities. They have been doing the training. And so what we now, so what we'd have is not a watchful waiting but this idea, as Claire has mentioned, of if, if a child requests a different pronoun or a different name, then that is something that um, is done almost without question, particularly at the second, particularly at the secondary, at, at the secondary level. And indeed, one of the most sinister things that occurred, and to be honest, it was extraordinarily dishonest uh, on Tuesday, was. Uh, <coughs> I, I'm going to use the word dishonest. It was um, at least disingenuous from council, from, from the King's Council um, for, for, for the school and local authority was, was to refer um, in her opening remarks to, to, um, to Hannah as a busybody. And, then, and she was then painting this picture of Hannah snooping, that was actually the word, snooping the records of this child uh, in order to um, in order to understand what was going on. But of course, what Hannah was doing was something that's absolutely appropriate within the school record. There are records that are kept for children um, that are exhibiting poor behavior. That's what teachers have access to that. She could see that the child was exhibiting poor behavior. She could. She cared about this child because this child had been brought to her notice. She knew what was happening. And so in order to make a safeguarding complaint, she went and got the evidence as all, all the teachers were entitled to see that evidence. That's exactly something that's there. It's in the school record. There was no snooping. There was no busybody prying. There was no um, uh, obsession. And this was the kind of language that was being loaded onto Hannah in that courtroom, language that was playing to the gallery. It was playing to the public gallery. It was playing to the media gallery so that then um, the BBC uh, that were there, um, again, with, a, with for sure an LGBT bias, because that's the, the journalists are clear that that's where, where they're coming from. And you only have to look at their Twitter accounts. Then have blown up these words, blown up these words that were used by the council, then adopted by the judge adopted by the judge in the judgment to actually begin to malign the character of this very kind, very compassionate, very quiet teacher that has had the courage 
to stand against this overwhelming tide within the school that says you must affirm this child in their delusion. Yeah, and, and look at you know how weaponized the language is throughout. I mean, we're talking about transgender instead yeah. of gender dysphoria. You know, transgenderism yeah. is an ideology. Gender dysphoria yeah. is a diagnosis. They're not the same. Yeah. And, and the irony and projection that, you know, Andrea, you were talking about, it's like, well, who's who's being the snoops and who's being the busy, busybodies? I mean, this whole situation encourages everybody to, to be that way, to seek out, you know, the non-believers that aren't complying with the the trans agenda. And they're, they're tagging this poor, courageous teacher as being all those things that, in fact, they are. I mean, who can withstand it? The, the thing is, most normal people, what happens is, sadly, is that many people just disengage they they can't face it they can't do it yeah. so well, they that's disengage the goal, isn't it that's the goal yeah yeah and so one of know, the points one of the points that came up in hannah's video and you picked up a bit andre already um was this pressure that uh, seen uh, this child seems to have been under or kind of or kind of psychological pressure that possibly um of having kind of transitioned and then kind of trying to trying to deal with that themselves a little bit and um, and you've talked about uh, this kind of society's understanding that uh, that tra being transgender is even plausible. Um, I was I, I picked up a, a story of one person who's um, regretting their gender transition. They said that they had um, breast removal surgery, essentially, um, and immediately regretted it and thought back to the time when they first had their friend say, um, say that maybe you're transgender. And, you know, in a, in a healthy society, that would have just been answered, well, that's silly. You know, we'd, we'd just immediately say, well, I can't be a, I can't be a man, really. I, I can't be trans, really. And the whole society and the whole concept that someone might be transgender is, is part of the issue here, I think. Um, what do you think, is that is that causing part of the psychological pressure, Andre? Well, yeah, when you've got kids, you know, it's biologically impossible to be born in the wrong body. Your sex is stamped on every nucleated cell in your body. If the cell has a nucleus, it has a sex. And that's determined at conception, just like you and I were. That's when embryology, vertebrate biology says life begins. It's not a religious statement, it's flat science. So life starts at conception and so does your sex. And there's nothing you can do to change it. So all these other things were applying to it, social transition, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, you know, uh, sex reassignment surgery, and you know now called gender affirming surgery or gender confirming surgery, uh, emphasizing how weaponized the language has become. This is all window dressing. You know your body will never stop trying to heal itself. Uh, plus those underlying you know mental health and adverse childhood events and other problems remain to be dealt with. And uh, you know it's as that realization comes up later in life, that's when we see the suicide rates really go up. And the best studies we have on the subject, you know, transition sex assignment surgery show that it increases suicides. It doesn't reduce it. Yes, I mean, that's, and then that just moves us swiftly. I mean, or not swiftly, but it, it, it moves us into another case that we've recently had, which is the case of Bernard Randall, where the Church of England minister in a Church of England school gives a Church of, uh, gives a Church of England sermon in a chapel uh, upholding um, biblical teaching on marriage, but also on being born male and female. Um, and a lot of the stuff that came against him as his trial, he was ultimately um, suspended and dismissed for gross misconduct. He was reported to safeguarding as a risk to children. Um, 
Mm. Not even, and the Church of England didn't stand up uh, for him in that particular circumstance, but sided with the local authority, sided with the school. But again, what the authorities brought into the courtroom and what the judges are buying and what the bishops are buying is that those that are identifying as homosexual, those that are identifying as trans, that that they are driven to suicide, driven to suicide by those that won't affirm, that by those that won't accept, and that they have to put these policies in place in schools in order uh, to keep safe that particular um, group of group of people that identify in that way. And unless they do, these children will be driven to suicide. Yeah, and it's simply and was saying Bernard said what was coming out was that we had to do something about Bernard Randall because we had children that would be would I mean they didn't quite I mean they didn't quite say it like this, but this is this is a say, but they would be driven to suicide by hearing something, by hearing the kind of stuff that's in Bernard's sermon, this drives children to suicide. And, and the truth is, you know, um I can be on radio programs and if if I've got someone on the opposite side of this, they can say to me, people like you drive us to suicide. I've been in hospital driven to suicide because people hold people hold views like yours. I mean, I mean, you talk about the weaponizing of language. And of course, again, what does it do to most normal people? Most normal people are saying, I don't I can't I can't deal with this. I don't know how to deal with this. Um, yeah, and you know, in another context, say we weren't talking about, you know, transgenderism, gender dysphoria you'd have to call out what suicidality means you yeah. know threats of suicide non-lethal harm well that's part of you know depression anxiety borderline personality disorder comes out really quickly in that and it's separate and distinct from completed suicides and again you know the study out of 2011 from sweden that looked at 30 years of all people who had undergone sex reassignment surgery found that if you follow them 10 years out or more they have 19 times the completed suicide rate of the general population, three times the all-cause mortality, meaning all the things that can kill someone, and almost three times the psychiatric rate of hospitalization. Uh, study at two, excuse me, 2019, Electronic Medical Review of all 9.7 million Swedes found that both gender-affirming hormones and gender-affirming surgery did nothing to improve any of the mental health benchmarks that they looked at. There's plenty in the medical literature showing it does not reduce suicides. So that that's something that really needs to be taken down uh, in the courts and in, in the public mind because it's it's a sales pitch and it's a false one. And well, I think what, what, what what that does, can I just say that what that does is that that just that ought to break our hearts. Yes. I mean, that really ought to break our hearts. It ought to break the church's heart for those of us that care about truth. For, for those of us that for those of us that really care for those people and want to see them made healthy, happy, whole, to live in a way that's congruent to their biological sex, to be set free from this dysphoria, to set, be set free from those thoughts and hurt, you know, this should break our heart. What Dr. Van Mol has just outlined there, what those the idea that when if people do this surgery, if people live out in the opposite sex, then they are more likely to commit uh, suicide. They are more likely to have depression. And that's why this, the, the mess, you know, the gospel message is so important. I mean, this, the message of healing, first of all, that we need true uh, psych psychiatric and psychological help that, you know, that helps and affirms. And again, so this little child in this school that we're talking about in the case, um, in, in, in Hannah's case, and the children 
in Nigel and Sally's school, they need proper medical, psychiatric, psychological help to really help them meet their needs. They don't need everyone saying to them, yes, you really are. Uh, you're absolutely right. You were born in the wrong body. They need the opposite. And they need really big, time-sacrificial love and care. And also, as Dr. Van Mollers said, also their families. Let's really work this through. Um, but, uh, I mean, those figures, uh, Dr. Van Moller, they're absolutely catastrophic. They're catastrophic. And the idea that I can be in a courtroom and even that you can present the figures, they're in the documents. And that still, it's a denial of truth. It's a denial of the evidence. How do we get to a place where we're in the courtroom or even or in doctor's rooms and people are denying the evidence? How did we get here? Yeah, well, the trans ideologues weren't sleeping. I mean, they were very, <clears throat> a lot of money behind it. Again, the there's the ideological motive and there's the profit motive, for, obviously, for the, the medical community, pharmaceutical firms, biotech firms, they're going to profit from greatly increasing their market share on this. And, you know, the ideologues have not been silent, as you pointed out, uh, with the mermaid situation and other things in the UK, similar, you know, things going on in the US, they've been informed, taking it upon themselves to be the information source for schools and politicians and judges. So when you arrive on the situation, it's not an open market of free ideas, their minds have been made up. It's been very carefully crafted. So that's why this is such an uphill climb. Um, but you don't mean, you did mention earlier about the new <coughs> NHS guidelines that you've 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 had a look at. Um, yes. Uh, about watchful waiting, uh, we have got a, a, an article about this on our website. Tim Dieppe, our head of public policy, has written a a bit of explanation about it. And we'd definitely encourage you um, in time to respond to that consultation uh, if you can. But um, I don't just mean Andre. I mean everyone listening, everyone watching. Uh, but you've um, uh, you've looked at this. Is it an improvement on what came before? Is there anything? you can point well, to in yeah it's a continuation of what i'm actually seeing coming out of formal documents out of the uk um but specifically this one uh again they're recommending a new model and as your viewers know you know the uh, gids tavistock um the world's largest pediatric gender clinic which is in the uk has been closed just as a result of you know what came out of the cast interim review i mean the cast review is not even done yet and other things like uh, the bell versus tavistock case and literature reviews out of, I think you call it the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence, NICE, NICE one and NICE two. One was about puberty blockers, one was cross-sex hormones, and this follows on that. So the number one thing uh, is a strong emphasis on mental health, and it's repeated throughout the document, um, saying that these specialty teams at what will now be, you know, multiple gender clinics operating under a totally uh, different arrangement than they were before, they want them headed by pediatricians. And they must include experts on autism, neurodisability, and other mental health problems, as they say, addressing a broader range of medical conditions in addition to gender dysphoria. Now there, that's kind of a side reference to what was mentioned in the CAS interim review, this problem of diagnostic overshadowing, they call it, whereby a kid comes into the GID Center, um, has all kinds of other problems, and once the label of gender dysphoria, of transgenderism lands on them, it's like all the other problems went away and aren't dealt with anymore, and they say that has to stop. Uh, again, their comment that social transitioning now needs to be viewed not as benign, but as an active intervention with significant effects. They even specified the desistance, 
quote, will reflect evidence that in most cases, gender incongruence does not persist into adolescence. Uh, endocrine interventions, henceforth, NHS England will only commission people being on puberty blockers in the context of strict formal research protocols that likely is also going to apply to cross-sex hormones, and they specify adequate follow-up into adulthood, which would be novel. We haven't seen a lot of that around the world. And strong emphasis on protecting children from um, acquiring unregulated hormones, because apparently it's, it's not difficult just to get this stuff on the web with no medical authority involved. Um, so those are a lot of good positive things mentioned in this proposal. That's good to hear. But um, this also comes in the context of conversion therapy bans or calls for conversion therapy bans. And um, and when that was going through, particularly about this time uh, last year, then you had um, this kind of radical trans campaigners saying that, uh, you know, calling for a conversion therapy ban, and they would la label everything you've just said as conversion therapy. Um, how, how can we square that when the government still apparently wants to do some kind of conversion therapy ban? The simplest approach to it, I'm going to say a couple of things here. One is I can't think of anything more conversionary than the chemical sterilization and surgical mutilation of a very able-bodied child. That's attempted conversion. Secondly, th the phrase conversion therapy is junk. It was born in the medical literature in 1991 by an activist psychologist, and it was always intended to be a shaming tactic, a jamming tactic this very poorly defined thing that you're supposed to assume means just awful stuff. And what it is, is it's prohibition against simple talk counseling, talk therapy, that's it. You know, they're saying you should be forbidden to talk about the possibility of change or to investigate how that might be possible for you in the context of undesired same-sex attraction. So you call it conversion therapy, now everybody's scared. Who's gonna lose their job because of this? Likewise, that's what's being done obviously, to the school teachers and administrators, everybody, you know, in the professions of society that, well, I'm not losing my job, uh, you know, for contradicting this kid who tells me they're trans. Well, th that tells me that, you know, the consensus, first of all, consensus is not a proxy for truth. But there's this thing called the Castro consensus, named after Fidel Castro, you know, the Cuban dictator, the idea, yeah, it's a consensus, but it's not a consensus of free will, it's because you want to preserve your neck. And when a Castro consensus exists, the odds of it being a false consensus go up dramatically. There's a comment there from Carol uh, referring to lobotomies and the trend, trend for those back um, many years ago. I wrote an article on that uh, some time ago. I think that's, um, you know, we look back in horror at what was uh, what was done there and often kind of with no, no. <laughs> Yeah, it was just turn up, sign up for it. Yeah, I, I, I brought I brought that up in legislative uh, testimony. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the fact that if this were the 50s or 60s, certainly in California and you know, elsewhere in the Western world, lobotomy was viewed as the, you know, the intellectual professional medical solution to these severe, uh, you know, psychiatric problems. Uh, the, the Portuguese neurologist who developed lobotomy won the Nobel Prize in the late 1940s. And if you were to say anything against it, you were obviously, you know, a Neanderthal, so why waste time with you? Well, now we look back at it, as you said, with horror, but at the time, the medical societies were supporting it. Government was supporting it. It was a really bad deal. Um, and, and, you know, we bring, last time I brought this up in testimony, within seconds, uh, trans um, ideologues on, on social media were saying, oh, Dr. Van Maul compares transgender people to the lobotomized. 
It's like, well, here we are, you know, twisting and misrepresenting again and doing it in seconds, milliseconds. Yeah. Um, Andrea, is is Hannah and are we just are we just right being guilty of being right too early? You know, are we just are we just ahead of the times and is that what we're guilty of? I think that knowing Hannah, as I know all of our Christian Legal Center clients and uh, many of those that um, are supporters of, of Christian concern, Hannah, quite honestly, she just loves Jesus. She, she loves her job. She's a teacher. Uh, she loves her loves her class, loves her children. And because she loves Jesus, she loves the truth. And those that really love Jesus and will will know the truth and the truth sets us free. So those that are in, that's the wonderful thing about knowing Jesus and to really know him and to really want to follow him and to really want to be obedient will mean that no matter what the world is saying, no matter what is swirling around, that you will have the eyes to see. You will have the eyes to see that which is false. And that's why it's so important as uh, as a gospel matter, as a, as it's, a, it's a spiritual battle. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's really important that we have the professionals doing all that they can in this professional field, but it's actually a, a battle in the, in the heavenlies for the truth, for the, for the God's truth, which is that each one of us is made in his image. We're made male, we're made female, and he knows us. He knows every single one of us. He knows that every single hair on the head of every single person on this planet and he has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. This is the extraordinary message for hope for anyone that's gender dysphoric, that God has a plan and a purpose and a, your identity. He knows who you are. He knows who you are. He wants to call you by name for his kingdom purposes. He wants to rescue and restore you and make you whole. That's the good news message of the gospel. Yeah, and we've seen wonderful stories, um, you know, in the UK, um, people, Pete, Benjamin, Libby, and others who've um, who've seen some of that transformation uh, happen in their own lives. And of course, there are loads of other stories out there um, that I encourage you to read. Changed Movement has lots of them. Uh, which I think are you involved with that, Andre? Yes, I am a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so, so that's um, that's an excellent source of these these stories. And we've seen I mean, well, yes, we do want to kind of what's as you've said, Paul. You know, to uh, you know, to just look at the um, the websites of Corsius Trust and X Out Loud and the Change Movement and the International Federation. Um, that um, just to go and look at all of those websites and to see many of these change stories, but also to look at some of the literature. We've got a lot of this literature, a lot of Dr. Van Mol's literature is there to be read and to be digested and to be um, spoken of in churches, in your in schools. It should be placed before your before school boards. Um, it should be placed as we respond to government. We should be actually circulating the the, the reports that Dr. Van Mole and Ken Zucker and others, uh, Professor McHugh, have written, uh, as well as the testimonies, they need to be everywhere so that it cannot be said that the truth has not been placed in every school and in, in every governing body, uh, wherever there's a challenge, but also in our government, in our governments. I've read some of those reports, um, including yours, Andre, and 
there's so much you know you've you've mentioned lots of you've you've had all the footnotes as you've been talking to us but you know you've you said it all but there's so much more that you've you've got there there's so much evidence um and i just really encourage christians you know we are on the side of truth um don't be don't be scared um to to, to speak truthfully about these things um we're running out of time um so thank you so much for andre for um for coming and joining us so early um you're involved in moral revolution, which I mentioned before. Um, I just, I just like you to just give us a, a little bit of an explanation about what that is and what what's that's trying to do. Uh, yeah, basically, you know, it's an organization uh, that that's founded by you know the, the church I attend, Bethel Church. Uh, but the idea is to to you know have in society a, a whole and holistic view of healthy sexuality, you know, age appropriate from young to old. Uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about that, and it's backed up by a lot of good science too. So that's at moralrevolution.com. There's lot. I, you know, I looked at it um, this week, and it, there's lots of really interesting, good content there. So I'd really recommend people to to have a look at that as well. Um, I would love to see a moral revolution in our nation, <laughs> a gospel revolution, moral, a moral revolution. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, and just as we close, I want to flag up some things that are coming up. Uh, there is an upcoming event. Uh, Tim Dieppe, who normally hosts Round the Table, uh, has a new book out called uh, Questions to Ask Your Muslim Friends. It's a really interesting, practical, helpful book uh, on that topic. And we're launching it at a special event in London on the 24th of November. Uh, tickets are £10 and they include a free copy of the book and refreshments. So that's an amazing deal. We'd really love to see anyone who can, who can get to London for that. Um, uh, we'd love to see you there. Um, hopefully we can stream it online as well. That's not yet a promise. Uh, so at least, you know, try and come along. Please do join us if you can. That's the 24th of November. And uh, hopefully we'll put the, the link uh, down below. Uh, and finally, I'm told this is the uh, episode 100 of Round the Table. Uh, we've been doing this for just over two years. And I just wanted to use this opportunity to quickly thank people who are involved. Uh, Andrea and Tim, uh, who are so often on the screen giving their insight, uh, giving their time. Thank you so much uh, for all of that effort you've put in, uh, all you've brought to it. And a big thank you to all our guests, Andre and many others, but also to those behind the scenes, uh, Rebecca, Chris, Priscilla in particular, who've, who've helped there. Thank you so much for making those things happen. And of course, we thank you uh, all for joining us along the way, for tuning in. Uh, thank you uh, for those who are here with us today and for all these two years. Thank you for watching, listening, commenting, and pressing that like button. Very important. Please do press that. We appreciate you all, and uh, we hope you've really gained lots from these episodes and for today. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week and beyond. We appreciate you too, Paul. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks.